0: Welcome to the Bro Novo podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Welcome along, everybody. It's your host, Thomas Pierce, and it is my pleasure to present with you a two-part conversation with Brent Giannata. He is a former CIA analyst, and we talk about His experiences working overseas in the CIA, working in anti-terrorism, and also more philosophical questions about the role of the United States, the role we play overseas in this conversation. And the next one gets kind of more into domestic politics and the psychological elements of extremism and how we can prevent that and prevent situations like we saw in Texas and New York over the last few weeks. If you have not already, please go ahead and and give us a rating on your favorite platform, particularly if you use Apple Podcasts. I'm going to share a review, this one from September of 2021, from Mickey. This is my favorite podcast, says the review. (laughs) Thomas is one of my favorite podcasters. He's real and unbelievably thought-provoking in the conversations he facilitates. He touches a multitude of topics ranging from social and racial justice to mental health and brings in an interesting perspective that forces you to think deeply about your own life and the world we inhabit. Thanks so much for the review, Mickey. Thank you all for listening and enjoy part one of this conversation with Brent Giannata. All right, everybody, welcome along. It's another Thursday, another episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast. It's your host, Thomas Pierce. This week, my guest is Brent Giannata. He's a Los Angeles native who, inspired by 9-11, became fluent and studied Arabic, uh, earned a grad degree in Egypt, and then worked as a CIA counterterrorism analyst for five years. He tracked ISIS external operators and extremist psychology. And last year in 2021, he published an LA Times op-ed comparing radicalization trends between ISIS foreign fighters and US political conspiracy theorists. So he's now... um, you could say in a budding career as a uh, commentator, maybe that's the way to put it. And uh, I wanted to get Brent on to talk about political, political polarization and also the profile of these uh, mass shooters that we've seen recently, because they tend to be white and male and at least the one in Buffalo. There have been met numerous other examples are motivated by white supremacist and racist extremist ideology. So, think it's a timely conversation and welcome to the pod, Brent.
1: Hey, thanks, Thomas. Thanks for having me. This is great.
0: Yeah, for sure. So you're a SoCal guy. Um, How would you you say you ended up in Egypt and how was that experience actually going over there and and being a student?
1: Yeah, well, 9-11 happened my junior year of college at USC in LA. So we were physically separated from all the destruction, but obviously glued to the TV and just trying to figure out what the hell just happened. Um, Just like everybody else was, this is two days before my 21st birthday. And so I am in the part of college where I've chosen a major already, but I can, I'm still a free agent. I can switch. So I happen to have chosen international relations, which is exactly where I needed. And after that really wanted to be. And so I know something clicked in my head that day where, like, what I just saw, these planes hitting the towers and this, like, totally bizarre, almost out of a movie attack on our country, whatever caused it and its ramifications seemed to be, like, the most important thing in all of humanity and would probably stay that way for a long time. And I don't know what it is about me. I just need to be doing the most important thing. Like, everything else kind of seems frivolous in comparison. So my kind of like intellectual adult brain got focused in a way that it really never had before. I mean, I was in a fraternity, I was on, I was playing on my school's hockey team, traveling a bunch, kind of like being a very normal college student, making all the mistakes, and you know, just like doing whatever with friends. Um, but in a way, I guess I like to think I turned into a little more of an adult that day. And I later found I wasn't the only one. So now I'm like every morning I'm reading the newspaper, which had been delivered to my fraternity house every morning. I just never really noticed it because it's like wasn't part of my morning routine. But now I'm like, my face is on the front page. I was like reading everything. I signed up for Arabic class. You know, I started taking that and then I graduate and, um, I took an internship in DC for a member of Congress. And, uh, if you've ever interned in Congress, like the work you're doing is not so interesting. The interesting part is like being where you are. So you're seeing the Congress person go in and out. You're going to hearings. Like the press sometimes comes in. Sometimes ambassadors come in. Like that stuff is cool. All like the milieu around you. But what you're doing every day is like you're clearing out databases and you're shredding mail. And you're answering the phone and like trying not to get yelled at. So, So a part of it is very exciting, but it kind of gets old after a few weeks. And so the only place that my mind went was to the Middle East where sort of that's where that excitement is. That's where like the really contentious and important issues concerning humanity are. And so I went online in my free hours at this job and I found a scholarship. I applied, I wrote some essays. I, I flew back to LA to do some interviews and I got this thing and they paid for my grad school in Egypt. So Sick. now we're talking August of 2006, like a lifetime ago, and I get to Cairo and it's August, so it is like beyond hot. And the first thing I <laughs> notice is that no one's wearing shorts; like they just don't wear shorts in Egypt. It's like not yeah. part of the culture. They're an Islamic culture in in their own style, which the styles of Islam they really vary from country to country and from town to town. And so now I got to wear jeans, and it's like a million degrees um and it's dusty (laughs) and so cairo is i learned a lot of stuff about this city i didn't know before cairo is probably built for like maybe like six million people but during the day it swells to like 20 million people so when a bus goes by like people are hanging out and like like off of the windows off of the back they're on top it's like stuff that you would see in like national geographic or something from india you know what i mean Um, the Mm -hmm. air pollution is like next level. Like if, if you've been in LA smog, it's like, it's nothing compared to Cairo because Cairo is, it's on the Nile river. So it's in sort of like a river bed, but then you go a couple miles and then you sort of ascend up in altitude to hit the rest of the desert. So it's in this kind of bowl. So whenever there's any kind of, wind it sinks yeah it just like blows all this dust it like like accumulates above the city and then just falls on it so the city is completely covered in dust like all the time um the noise pollution in the middle of cairo is crazy i mean just honking just everywhere i mean we don't really honk in la anymore because no one wants to get you know get a bullet coming at them from someone who has lost their (laughs) mind but honking is just like that's just 24 7 in Cairo. So you've got all this stuff, all this like very like weird. Oh, the other thing is everything's broken. The infrastructure is terrible. So if, um, if something breaks in your apartment, someone comes, you pay them. And instead of like reinstalling or retrofitting, they, they sort of like tie a wire around it and just hope it, it stays that way, but it doesn't stay that way. You call them back again (laughs) and you, you hand them more money two weeks later. So this is kind of how this society works. And for someone like me of a privileged, overeducated just white kid and there were you know hundreds of me there too this is a culture shock like of the first degree and so your brain has to do something to get through this you have to somehow convince yourself that all these annoyances and these differences and just like i can't sleep and it's too hot and i'm uncomfortable pretty much all the time that this is a good thing for me and i'm going to embrace this whole this whole experience And not all of us could do it. A lot of people went home after the first semester and said, I'm done. And so that was like, it's different than studying abroad in like London or Paris. It's being uncomfortable and out of your element all the time and always standing out and having people harass you for whatever reason. Egypt was, it was such an experience that I still see my life as like before Egypt and after Egypt. So that's what that was all about. Amazing amazing dude No, oh, thanks
0: that's cool you, you stuck it out yeah that neuroplasticity right yeah and just changing and rewiring especially that age mm. yeah and also it's a big difference from the, like the traditional study abroad and that you're doing grad school so it wasn't like oh i have a four months where i can go fuck off you know it's like <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's like you're out oh, of fucking off <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah let's not get that twisted well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no you're right i had a lot of homework like my i was reading constantly i'm not a particularly fast reader so they were assigning me like a whole lot of reading i had to get this stuff done on top of that i roommate i roomed with two um, undergrads they were study abroad kids from georgetown like very dear friends of mine but they had their friends and i met them and then uh, i met a girl i started dating her and like everybody's a couple years younger than me and having a very different experience not very different just a uh, much more lively and exploratory experience than I am. I'm like really trying to get through this work and understand this culture from like the ground up. So yeah, in that sense, it was a bit different.
0: And how was the progress with your Arabic? Because I did undergrad in DC and I had a few friends, a lot of friends actually study Arabic. And I would say the only one who became fluent or close to fluent was my buddy Francisco, who, has actually been on the podcast and he he grew up bilingually and is just a polyglot. He's just an amazing mm-hmm. linguist, mm-hmm. but it just seems like everyone else, some of the smartest people I knew really struggled with it. And then it wasn't until they went there. So like Francisco went to Jordan, I believe. And yeah. that's when he kind of leveled up. But how was that process? And, and was it a, a steep learning curve when you got there and when, when did it when did you say you kind of hit that crest the the hill of being the wave
1: yeah comfortable yeah yeah good question so like three really important points on language learning in Arabic Arabic one Arabic is absolutely wild if you're coming from English <laughs> it's just like it's impossible number two is some people's brains are just <laughs> wired for this. And like, if you look at the smartest people, you know, like the straight A's, it's not necessarily them. This is a totally different capability in the human brain. And number three is that immersion is the, the only way to get any good at this. So, so my brain, I don't think I'm good at language learning. I don't think I'm particularly good at it. And I know this because I was in, I lost track of how many classes. I probably took like 15 all in all Arabic classes. And halfway through, more than halfway through, so I've been studying like eight, nine years. Um, I meet some kid who just starts picking it up really, really fast. So he or she is learning <laughs> the basics in like a quarter of the time that it took me to learn the basics. And then suddenly by the final right. exam, like they sound better than I do. I'm like, this is bullshit. It's like really frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> but I stuck, I mean, and so we're all humans, like humans. Are attracted to things and activities that we're kind of naturally good at, you know, whether it be basketball or art mm-hmm. or drawing or whatever. If you can feel gratification from other people thinking that what you just produce is really awesome, you're going to like that activity. It's like human nature. For some reason, I was the opposite in Arabic. I was terrible. Like I, I, I did this intensive summer at UCLA in the summer of 2004, and at the end of it, like there were a couple of kids that just totally blew everybody else away and I was not one of those people. I was demoralized. but again, going back to the 9/11 experience, this this region of the world is really important and in a million ways that I don't understand yet. And so I was just kind of like looking over the horizon like I can I'm about to graduate college. Like I can even start figuring out what the hell I'm doing with myself, with my adult life and this is the only thing that really gets me going mm-hmm. and so i can't just drop out because oh i like didn't get it on the first try and like i got a b instead of an a or i got a c or you know like no one really thinks that i'm gonna be any good at this um i gotta keep keep going and that's that's what i did i did three more intensive summer programs after ucla one of them's at middlebury in vermont which is one of the kind of wow. premier, yeah kind of premier language learning spots in the country really? yeah and um then uh yeah then i went to beirut i'm like i I gotta get there and in beirut you sign a contract saying you're not going to speak english the whole summer of course you don't fully grab onto that but as far as like being in the classroom for five hours a day not a word of english it is all arabic so like you can't ask for clarification you got to just figure it out. So it is like it's being thrown to the deep end in every sense. And that's the only way to get good at this. And so to answer your question of when it started to click, I mean, after a year in Egypt, yeah. After like every five minutes, I'm saying, hi, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Oh, this is my name. What are you doing? Like all those like very common words and phrases, those come out without me having to think about them. Suddenly that that sort of burrows out some mental bandwidth to focus on the more complicated stuff. And now I can do the complicated stuff. And that's, I think what fluency is all about, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because the intro stuff is simple, but it's also really important socially. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's the other side of our brain that we need social connection. We need acceptance. We need friends. We need to do business. We need to study and we can't piss these people off. Mm -hmm. So I think, for me, it'd be getting tripped up and wanting to make sure I presented myself well. And I had a similar. I'm, this, you were talking about that. Talking about that is getting me really stoked because I'm about to move to the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And I did do a semester in Germany undergrad, and I only spoke German. I didn't hang out with the Americans. I like went for it, and it was really rewarding. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot better, obviously. Um, but yeah, I'm all I'm all stoked to go to. Uh, the Philippines, actually, I think because I'm going to be working nights, kind of more U.S. style hours, I'll have time. I can do classes during the day to nice.
1: Portugal. Are you going to be in Manila in the capital yeah. there? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So there'll be like, there'll be a lot of English speakers there. If you ever But that's not feel, the goal. <laughs> right. That's not the goal. Yeah. If you ever get <laughs> yeah, yeah. Up and feel yeah. yeah. All right. Good. It's nice to have a safety. Totally. Totally. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: Agreed. Yeah, man. Okay, so then how did you end up getting recruited by the CIA? Did they come for you or did you, did you, did you go to them? You were probably on their radar, I
1: guess, through that grad program. I would like to think so, but I didn't feel it. It didn't feel like I was on their radar at all. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I was. Maybe that's a, you were a five-star recruit? To their, yeah, their <laughs> ability to maintain yeah. their secrecy. But, um, okay. So I pop out of grad school and now we're talking summer 2007 and, um, I moved back to LA where I am now with my family and, you know, I have a, now I have a graduate degree in Middle East studies. So like I know about the Ottoman empire and I know about Middle East politics, also African politics and I can find most Middle Eastern countries on a map if you give me like 10 seconds. Um, those skills don't typically translate into lucrative jobs and careers in the United States. So I applied to everywhere you would assume I applied to. The FBI, State Department, DOD, and then the CIA. And the CIA was not my first choice because during my education in the Middle East, I learned that the CIA has a very bad reputation In the middle east not only in the middle east but in much of the developing world um back in the 50s um, the cia famously unseated uh from power in iran and iran was very angry about that understandably so and many researchers believe that that was the long-term impetus to the like the fury and fire that ushered in the Islamic revolution in 1979, which then uh, ushered in decades of hostility between the Iran and the U.S. And famously, they say that the average American would feel much more comfortable on the streets of Tehran, Iran, than in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia being a U.S. ally and Iran being a U.S. enemy, which is just like, a supreme irony that one could trace all the way back to something that the CIA did in the 50s and probably shouldn't have done and that's on top of, you know, stuff the CIA did in in Central America in the 80s and around the Caribbean and things like that. So I didn't want to be the enemy. I didn't want to be someone who was seen as potentially underhanded or or secretly hated this, you know, Islamic or Arab culture. I wanted to be the opposite. I wanted to be welcome and I wanted to connect and sort of expand my own horizons by by knowing these people and you know allowing them the space to welcome me in but as i i moved to dc and i did get a job at a human rights organization again in their middle east department so i got to, uh, i had a huge education there too i kept meeting people who were sort of in the orbit of the intelligence industry and they said man if you get a job in the cia that is just the best because of your opportunities for travel for the things you will learn the access to information that you'll have um the people you'll meet like the higher ups you'll be able to brief and travel with and the embassies you'll visit and the briefings you'll be able to do and the trainings um that all sounded like the kind of personal development that i really wanted and sort of suddenly like the bad things and the negatives started to fade into the background all the positives were sort of piling up on, on themselves. Then I got um, rejected. I got a no- thank you thing in the mail from the CIA, and I was, you know, pretty disappointed, but you know, that didn't work out, so clearly my path is somewhere else. Meanwhile, my parents were both from Detroit, Michigan, and so I kind of grew up with uh, like a love of ice hockey in my household. So I played from a very young age. so that means that when I moved to DC., I joined a team there. And one guy on one of my teams, um, he told me that he worked at the CIA. And I, I told him, like, hey, you guys just rejected me. And he asked, oh, you, you said you speak Arabic. Like, is it pretty good? I'm like, yeah, I, convince you, I can convince you that I'm fluent. And he said, well, send me your resume. And it turns out that guy was a very senior analyst and had a friend working in human resources for that one year. And so one thing led to another, and suddenly it was back on. And then I had a nine-month security background check. And then I started, my first ASCIA was June 6, 2010. And I entered into the Iraq Department of the Counterterrorism Center, where everybody was kind of winding down this surge operation by coalition forces to kind of beat Al-Qaeda and in Iraq into the ground, which had pretty much happened and sort of mollified the um, the Sunni tribes out in Anbar province and just all sorts of horrific violence. Um, things were sort of like calming down, but there were a lot of people still in this department and it seemed like they didn't all need to be there. But then not even a year later, the Arab Spring started and the 500 or so Al-Qaeda and Iraq members who were hiding out underground in northern Iraq surged across the border into Syria And started, not started, they sort of like co opted the fight against the Bashar al Assad regime in Syria. And so what the CIA did was this isn't the Iraq department anymore, it's the Syria Iraq department. And so now we've got two, the two most important, most dynamic countries in the entire Arab world are now under our, not jurisdiction, but sort of like our our problem. And so when I got there, there was a bit of a lull but man, it just ramped up right after that. And all of our careers got really wild after that.
0: Incredible. So what do you mean by our problem? You know, and some would say who, who is the U S to self appoint as the police officer in the region, you know, like what's the, what's the implication of that? kind of positioning
1: yeah great question so i remember when i was an undergrad taking these international relations classes and this is we're talking like 2000 2001 2002 and the question that always came up was like should the united states be the global watchdog there's always a binary choice it's like do we insert ourselves or do we not and i've come to believe that's a bit of a false choice and that If we, if we don't insert ourselves, things, things can spin out of control to a way that will negatively affect us down the road. Um, but when we do insert ourselves, shit gets real messy and real bad, like real quick. Okay. So there's got to be some, some middle of the road, right? There's got to be something that we can do where we're, we're not ignoring our problems, but we're also you know, not ruining lives to, you know, to achieve like basically nothing in a society that we barely understand. So the conflict in Syria was just another chapter in this very sad chapter of American foreign policy where we are flailing, like we don't know where on that spectrum we should be. And so we overplayed our hand in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we already knew that by 2010 when I started. In 2011, when the Arab Spring really was like popping off. And so we've got a new president, um, Barack Obama, and he knows that the American public is just so sick of boots on the ground type of operations in the Middle East and like rightfully so. It like hasn't gone well. Um, But he also realized he can't do zero. And so there really wasn't much of a strategy from the White House, which is Kind of fine it, it we can still work we can still do a whole lot without there being a codified strategy from above because the CIA just like any other intelligence agency, we have a mandate we've got a mission we've got like plaques and stuff that like that announce our values and like, I took I put my right hand up and I took you know an oath to serve the Constitution and that I serve uh, you know the American people and at the At the not the mercy, but there's that phrase where I serve the president of the United States as our number one customer and client. And so as an analyst, we had to we had to help the case officers and spies like get as much information as possible. When they bring it back to us, we figure out like what is important. And then once we find something that's important or threatening, we write it like a journalist into a narrative that we then publish and give to policymakers and decision makers so that they can make better, more informed decisions. And so we did not put boots on the ground, which is probably a very good decision. Um, but we tried to arm the sort of pro-democracy rebels fighting against the Assad regime. And it ended up not really going super well because one by one, they were kind of selling the arms that we would give them to the jihadists, to the members of al-Qaeda and ISIS and whatnot. And so this whole thing just kind of fizzled out. And uh, we didn't achieve our immediate goals until about 2016, 17, when we started arming the Kurdish rebels in northeast Syria. And then they eventually rooted ISIS out of Raqqa, which is the city that they, they call their headquarters so, I mean, a whole lot of people died. A lot of people died in a really bad way um, by getting their heads sawed off or being tortured to death or executed. And as CIA analysts, we have to we have to watch those videos um, to sort of understand what these groups are trying to convey, not only to their enemies, but to their recruits. And so I was like up to my eyes and that kind of stuff. And um it gives you just a really bizarre and pretty fucked up perspective to parts of the human experience that you and i sitting in the united states like never have to contend with but this this just like horrific turn of events can be the reality for so many billions of people that are in our human family and you you can avoid that reality for your entire life but for five years, my, my teammates and I, we had to have this push in our face. And not only that, but try to like do something to help. And I, I, I love being able to say that we did do a lot to help, that when we came in on stayed nights and came in on weekends for no extra pay, because we knew that if we did our job really, really well, that like some innocent people would not die before their time. We were able to make that happen for, you know, handfuls of people but it takes a whole of government approach to do this thing. Right. And although the Obama administration definitely tried, I don't think we hit the mark on this one. And so that's why like coming on a podcast like yours. I think that there's an even better way to do this going forward. Unfortunately, our foray into Syria was, was not something we should look to as an exemplar of how to deal with international conflicts going forward.
0: Yeah, man, it's, such a web of like historical context and also competing interests within the various departments. But that's interesting. It almost sounds like to see at your role, at least was kind of the intelligence side to where the green berets would be doing the actual training and, and the kind of upskilling. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's such a, my biggest perception I think of these forays is really, it's like either, and this maybe is my jadedness, but it's like, there's some natural resources or political resources up for grab, or it's a kind of counter push or rebalance the power front of the three world powers. You know, it's like, okay, well, if we don't get in here and, and insert some influence, then Russia or China will. Um, and I think that's the thing that, yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting world and I don't have a, a, a great wealth of knowledge, but, yeah, it's, it's kind of this side of what we do as a country where there's so much fighting and, and rightfully so concerned about things happening domestically. But there's also these branches of our government that re- represent us overseas that are not elected. Often they're appointed by a president and they're out setting policy and making decisions using a lot of money and yep. making decisions that impact people's lives. And people in the states don't, don't know that's even happening. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so it's like a good thing to to treat up on where would, for someone who wants to learn more about foreign affairs, where would you direct them just to kind of like start to get a picture of what's going on outside of the U S
1: as a starter. I mean, you could read the international pages of the New York times and the Washington post. That's a great place to start. Um, Further afield than that foreign policy magazine, is pretty excellent um the articles are short enough and consumable enough the economist is pretty good too if you want uh more of like a graduate level education and like strategy and sort of like the new thoughts of like where our global security is going and where sort of the positions of russia china and the u.s are sort of looking to go, um, you should subscribe to foreign affairs magazine. It's put out by the council on foreign relations in New York. And I mean, Henry Kissinger and, uh, Jake Sullivan and even Stacey Abrams, Joe Biden, they're all published in there. Um, and just a ton of academics who do this stuff for a living, either they're at Harvard or Yale or Johns Hopkins, or they're at Brookings institution again, the council and, All sorts of other um, international relations and political science, um, academic research organizations all over the country. So that's a good place to start. Um, Yeah, foreign affairs is really tough because in contrast to domestic politics, we have so many organizations in our country that are doing studies and polls and researches constantly. We've got all these numbers from government programs from the 40s and 50s, like, We know how the 29 stock market crash went down and like what happened before that, what happened after that. So we can run these numbers and regression models over and over and over again. But in foreign affairs, we don't have that wealth of data. We don't have, how many world wars do we have? We have two. You know, how many, (laughs) how many invasions of the Arab world do we have? We have like two. Um, It's just not, it's not enough information to really Mm. get a good sense statistically and responsibly about what what the fuck are we supposed to be doing? Like, how should we be running this stuff? So that makes me on some level sympathetic that our decision makers are not getting it right. And it's exactly what you said that um, in the domestic realm, so many of our laws and bills and sort of things that we want to help improve our society are at the mercy of our legislature. And we are nominally represented you and me as like citizen voters, but we're almost overrepresented in that so much like this digital media hostility is and uh, wealth inequality and these, you know, companies who flood the Hill with their lobbyists. It feels like these representatives in Congress are more beholden to them than to you and me as citizen voters, but in the foreign affairs realm, is totally different. Like we don't vote on whether we should invade Iraq or not. Like I didn't, no one asked me. I don't know if you voted on that, but I definitely didn't. Um, and covert <laughs> operations, like we don't know about covert operations until months or even years after they happen. And not only are these things affecting like the world, a very globalized world where like it affects our economics, but it also affects how you and I see ourselves as americans like is that a benevolent thing or is that an evil thing there's a whole there's a host of great arguments on both sides of those things cuz the us has done like horrific shit all over the world but it's also very literally a beacon of like human liberty to an extent that no other nation state ever is or ever was and so it's this like ultimate paradox dichotomy that is really hard to pull apart and obviously no one should come down too hard on one side or the other just like anything else in life it's nuanced and there's a ton of gray area but the way that we handle foreign affairs needs to fucking change and like i'm done with the excuses (laughs) that i just brought up we're like oh you know we we're like in second grade vis-a-vis foreign affairs in general like that's we're over with that um there's this great writer guy at uh, columbia um Wertheim, his last name is Wertheim, and he wrote sort of this autopsy of the forever war. So, the last 20 years since 9 11, the United States, or at least our leaders, have seen our military as a hammer and seen every problem as like a nail that needs to be slammed. And we've seen with our lack of success in Iraq, Afghanistan, don't forget about Libya, Yemen, and Syria, that this is not working. And that we are entering and should be entering a brand new era of foreign affairs, which I'm very excited about. But this is going to hinge on the Biden administration and on whoever comes after him uh, to really right this ship. And so that's where I think we are right now.
0: Yeah, dude. And so much of Trump's criticisms came domestically, but his complete lack of education as far as not coming up through the institutions, I think that's the big risk of having a leader who was never previously in public service or in the the international affairs realm. Because I mean, sure he's, I'm sure extremely well traveled and has done business all over the world, but that's very different. Um, mm-hmm. So not that, that necessarily that disqualifies someone who hasn't been in the institution from doing a good job, but I think that's an important thing to consider when like, we're all screaming about him being an idiot domestically. Mm-hmm. What's he doing overseas? Um,
1: yeah. 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 That's an excellent point. And a lot of people, people that I know, and I'm sure, you know, people like this too, that they think Trump was really good in foreign affairs. And they think that because he was hard on China, which personally I agree with. I think that's, I think that's the right policy toward China considering everything they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he didn't start a new war anywhere. Um, which is true. However, he did not end any wars like he said he would. He didn't pull out of Afghanistan like Biden did, because I think Trump could feel Trump has like a better kind of like feral sense of these things <laughs> than Biden does. He has a finger on the pulse for sure. Yeah, he's got his finger on some pulse and he's like, yeah. no, I'm not gonna pull out of Afghanistan. That's gonna be a mess that I don't want on my hands, right? It's yeah, he's he wants quick. He wants quick and dirty, in and out, and then take the media win. And that is not what military mobilization is like at all. Um, but something it is a quick and dirty win is by executing Soleimani, um, the Iranian general, the like the number three in the entire country. And so, in a split second, that guy went from being alive to dead. And when he was alive, he led, like reams of covert operations all over yemen and uh lebanon where iran has these like proxy organizations and he is responsible for the death and torture and oppression of like literally millions of people and so he was a bad dude and the world is better for him not being here but just because trump you know, did a couple quick and dirty things that looked really good in the media and didn't start a new war and play the madman theory against Xi Jinping and China doesn't mean he's a sophisticated international actor. Like we really, really need. I mean, this shit is so complicated. It, it's, and a testament to that is how badly we've bungled it. I mean, in the United States, we have the best secondary education on planet earth, bar none. And yet we still can't elect and appoint smart enough people to like do this right. And so Trump did a lot of really bad, irresponsible things uh, internationally as well. I mean, he, he got us closer to nuclear exchange with North Korea than any other president has. And there was, there was a moment in there when we all thought we might strike Iran and that we might strike Venezuela. Um, those would be really, really bad things to do, like categorically. And so he was no genius. He was just himself. And he got a couple wins in there. But after, f- through four years, you should be able to get a couple wins, given the just awesome power of the presidency vis-a-vis, you know, foreign affairs. So, yeah, it's it's a big dichotomy. And a lot of people think he was really good. But, man, it, it was a scary world. Uh, it was really touch and go for the that entire time. So, um, personally, I wasn't a fan. Um, Biden, I don't believe, is a man of, like, real vision beyond his own, Personal experiences, which which are very valuable. I mean, he knows personal loss and personal empathy. I think better than you know most presidents we've had in the last few decades. But um, unfortunately, I don't I don't see him having the kind of vision fortitude that our country probably needs, rather our world probably needs for the U.S. to be the ultimately responsible actor to not only guarantee but like improve human liberties and material outcomes for billions of our fellow humans that are living in either like authoritarian or like quasi authoritarian countries. that just like, can't, can't get a break. I mean, they, they need our help. They haven't gotten it. And this circles right back to our problem in Syria. I mean, with Syria, we just bombed in one day in 2011 and said, all right, we're here. Now what do we have to do? We weren't there before. We weren't helping. We weren't doing much to try to make that place not as bad as it ended up becoming and we need to divert tons and tons of military dollars to places like usaid to places like voice of america the stuff that really moves the needle on the democratic balance that you brought up i mean in 120 countries around the world out of 200 elites just run roughshod over the non-elites so you got like the four percent who are taking all the spots in the good schools They're taking all the spots in the good sports teams. I mean, there's not good professional soccer clubs from the continent of Africa because their best teams are only populated by the sons of elite families. They're not taking from the millions and millions and millions of people that can't get a break and are not allowed. They're not allowed to go to good schools, to get good training. They're not allowed to take out bank loans to build a small business, to kind of like pull themselves up. It's not allowed to happen because the elites are so scared of sharing with everybody else. They think they're going to be run over and probably dragged out of their palaces and beaten to death, which is like, yeah, they probably are, but they deserve to be because of what they've done to their countrymen. That's the kind of world we're living in. The United States as a government either doesn't know that or doesn't care or doesn't think that they have what it takes to really improve material outcomes around the world and i fundamentally disagree with that like we're we're better than this as a country and as people we're better than this we need to start caring about about the situations that just normal global citizens find themselves in before there's a crisis in their country and uh yeah that's what i'm like blaring from the mountaintops i'm open to be being convinced to being wrong about this but that's where i am right now (laughs)